0: My friend, thank you so much for downloading this podcast, and it is my sincere hope you'll hear something that will encourage, edify, equip, and then get you out into the marketplace of ideas. But before you listen, I'm going to tell you about this month's truth tool. My truth tool is offered to anyone who gives a financial gift to In the Market with Janet Parshall. And this month I've chosen the book, Connecting the Dots, What God is Doing When Life Doesn't Make Sense. Ever been there? Of course you have. We all have been. Sometimes we think we're walking in circles, and we're wondering whether or not God has left us, we've walked away from Him, what in the world we're doing, if we're even in the center of His will. So this book is designed to help you find peace and confidence in your current challenge and all of us have challenges. It also will make sense of most of the lessons you're learning right now. And the most important part of this and why I felt this would be appropriate is because it will help clarify in your mind the unique mission and message that God has given to you. So the book is called Connecting the Dots. It's yours for a gift of any amount. And all you have to do is call 877-Janet-58. That's 877-Janet-58. And give a gift of any amount, and we'll send you a copy of Connecting the Dots. If you prefer to do it online, that's easy as well. In the market with org, Scroll to the bottom of the page. There's the cover of the book. Click on through, make your gift, and again, we'll send you a copy of Connecting the Dots. Just below the picture of the book is a description of what it means to be a partial partner. Those are people who give every month a gift of their own choosing. They set the level of giving. I don't. But they'll always get the truth tool. And in addition to that, a weekly newsletter that goes out as well. So consider being a partial partner or getting a copy of Connecting the Dots by calling 877-Janet58 or online at inthemarketwithjanetpartial.org. Now, please enjoy the program.
1: Do you have a
2: question? The question I've always said about the Bible is, are miracles and the ability to perform miracles possible in this day and age? Do you have a question? Is the Bible inerrant? Can we trust the Word of God? What did Jesus mean when he said, judge not that you be not judged? What is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Does God know with absolute certainty what will be the free will choices of men and women? What is legalism? Can a Christian lose their salvation? Can God ever change his mind. Could Jesus have
0: sinned? If and when a baby dies, do they go to heaven? Are Christians obligated to tithe? Should all Christians speak in tongues? What can we know about the existence
2: and activity of Satan? Are demons real? What can we know about angels? Can a Christian be demonized?
1: Will people that have never heard the name of Jesus be condemned for not believing in him? Are miracles
2: and the ability to perform miracles possible
1: in this day and age? Do you have a question?
0: I hope you do, because that's what we're going to do this hour, is take any question you have on the Bible or Christianity. Welcome to In the Market with Janet Parshall. Dr. Sam Storms is our guest. He's the only one who gets that specially and uniquely created open, because you all have a lot of questions. And Lord willing, as long as we can, we're going to keep letting you ask them. So you're going to need this, 877 877- 877 548 3675. Questions only. 877 548 3675. Any question you have on the Bible or Christianity. And that opening montage gave you a sense of the kinds of questions that you can ask. Now, I'm going to give the introduction to Dr. Storms, and then I'm going to be, as we say in Washington, since I am the chair of this committee, it is the privilege of the chair to ask the first question. That's all Washington, D.C. parlance. So I'm just you know, can whisk it away with your hand, it means nothing. But <laughs> I am gonna ask that first question while you're asking yours. And by the way, let me tell you, the phones always light up. And when you hear me say goodbye, that means the line is now open because a lot of people have a lot of questions. You know what? You keep asking such good questions that it really creates in the hearts and minds of other listeners a really good question. And we really pick up steam as we go along. So eight seven seven five four eight three six seven five. 548 3675 here's the formal introduction. Dr. Storms is brilliant. Can I can I just leave it there? What I love about him is not only is he a superb teacher. And not everyone is called to teach, by the way. Not every pastor necessarily believes that teaching is their gifting. They might be an administrator. They might have all kinds of other different giftings. But teaching is a very special gift. And when you have someone who is teaching theology, as Dr. Storms did at Wheaton for a while, when you're teaching from the pulpit, as he did for multiple years at Bridgeway Church in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, You are blessed. Then his teaching also comes out in the form of his writing and his articles. So he's got book after book after book after book. So I have a link now to his uh, website, samstorms.org. Not hard to remember at all, but you'll see just a richness of resources for you to be able to peruse. And on the right-hand side, I picked tough topics too, because credit must be given where credit is due. The idea of opening the phone for you to ask these questions emanates from two books among many that Dr. Storms wrote, dealing with challenging questions. So he wrote tough topics, 25 challenging questions. And then he wrote tough topics too. He could have done this odd infinitum. We could be talking talking tough topics, 135 if we wanted to, but he stopped at two and moved on. And then we kind of got the idea. Well, there are a lot of people out there with questions. So that's what we do. We picked up on the idea of one of his many books where you can simply ask this question. So I should tell you also that he serves as a member of the Council of the Gospel Coalition. He's the past president of the Evangelical Theological Society, and uh, his books are many, and I've got multiple topics that are listed there. So the list goes on and on and on. Suffice it to say, you love him as evidenced by the calls that come in when he comes. So in tough topics too, one of the questions that are put that's put forth is, and i think it's an important one because we're in a devolving culture in terms of christianity and concrete orthodox eternal views are dissipating sadly so i'm glad that these questions are still being asked because it'll help you understand what you believe and why you believe it so one of the questions in tough topics 2 is does hell last forever so say that i'm i'm not saved i'm just I'm, this is a question and i believe all kinds of unsaved people ask this question why guess the Bible says God has placed eternity in our hearts. So you're sitting at your laptop and you're going, okay, you know, I don't want to go there, but I I just, if I did go there, would I be tormented forever? So I know I'm just going to Google it. So what do you do? You go to a place like Quora. Quora is one of those weird websites where everybody and their brother can weigh in. And sadly, far too many people who go there think that because it's posted on that page you're looking at on your desk at your laptop, it's ex cathedra. It's truth. It's not. So I did that just for giggles. I wanted to see exactly what Cora was saying that is being used to lead people astray, both believers and non-believers. So this individual posts that although many contemporary Protestant Christians believe that hell lasts forever, many other Protestant, Catholic, Orthodox, and non-denominal Christians do not believe it lasts forever. And he goes on to define this idea of what it means to be a Christian universalist, not to be confused with the Unitarian Universalist Church, And then cites allegedly people in the past who have also believed this, but the worst, the most egregious part of this is that this particular individual says that the Bible supports the idea that hell is not eternal. In fact, I'm quoting, the Christian Bible is absolutely full of statements, the poster says, that supports Christian universalism. For example, see 100 scriptural proofs that Jesus Christ will save all mankind. And although this is not exhaustive, there are several examples from this list. So he cites, God wants all people to be saved from 1 Timothy. And 2 Peter, God does not want anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Okay, great. And the list goes on. So I'm going to ask you, Dr. Storms, because I wish I could tell you that this was Quora, this was secularists, this was skeptics, this was seekers. But this is now a drift we are seeing if there's reliability in Dr. George Barner's research, and I believe there is, where people who have made a profession of faith allegedly no longer believe in greater and greater numbers. And the last time I checked, we were hitting close to the 50-yard line where Christians didn't believe that hell was eternal and that not only was it not eternal, um, that you either subscribe to the idea of nihilism or you subscribe to the idea of universalism, where God in the end is going to save everybody, even out of the depths of hell. So I turn to you, who's the pastor emeritus, who's the theologian, who's the teacher, who's the writer, because this is not a small question. This is a monstrously huge and important question. Oh, and there's the music. So I set it all up. <laughs> And I'll take the answer on the other side, Sam. This gives my friends a chance to get their calls up to 877-548-3675. Oh, and uh, for the record, every line is lit. This is what happens. So I'll get Dr. Storm's answer to the question, is hell forever? One of the questions he takes up in Tough Topics too. And then that's my one question I'll get answered, and then I'm going right to the bones. Dr. Sam Storms is with us for the whole hour. Back after this. God is always at work in your life, but most of the time you can't see it or understand it. That's why I've chosen Connecting the Dots as this month's truth tool. Discover how to know what God is doing when life doesn't make sense. Ask for your copy of Connecting the Dots when you get a gift of any amount to In the Market. Call 877 Janet 58, that's 877 Janet 58, or go to In the Market with Janet Partial.org. Dr. Sam Storms is with us, Pastor Emeritus of Bridgeway Church in Oklahoma City. Also, he is the founder of Enjoying God Ministries. So the question, sir, is simply, does hell last forever? Yes or no?
1: Janet, I always love your questions because they're so easy. It's just, you know. <laughs> Seriously, though, um, as you said, quite a challenging question. And yes, there have been um, good conservative bible believing christians who have struggled with this to the degree that they finally concluded that annihilationism is true in other words that uh, unbelievers will be judged and punished in proportion to their sin but after a, a season of time they will be annihilated in other words they will just <clears throat> excuse me they will just simply cease to exist um, i remember john stott one of the greatest uh, british evangelicals uh, who passed away about 10 15 years ago believe this. So did a man named Philip Edgecombe Hughes, a great New Testament scholar. <clears throat> but um, I think they're mistaken, and let me just quickly mention three texts that our listeners could look up for themselves. The first one is in Matthew 25. It's at the very end of the what's called the sheep-goat judgment, uh, when Christ returns, and he's talking about the goats, and he said, they, these, will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous, or the sheep, into eternal life. Well, everybody acknowledges that the eternal life that the righteous, or the sheep, inherit is endless. It's, that's the meaning of eternal there. Well, are we going to say that the very same word eternal in the preceding sentence means something altogether different? Mm. So we would have to read this as, these will The goats will go away into temporal punishment, but the righteous into eternal, unending life. Well, the problem is that's not what Jesus said. He said both of them, the punishment and the life, depending on your relationship to Christ, is, it, they're both eternal in nature. So I don't see how anyone can escape that. Uh, let me mention another passage for people to look at. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, um, verse 9. Well, the whole uh, the second half of that first chapter is all about what happens at the second coming of Christ. And he's talking about those who do not obey the gospel of Jesus. And he says, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. So again, it just seems rather clear to me what he's saying. But without question, the most definitive and explicit statement about the eternality of hell is in the book of Revelation, chapter 14. It's interesting, uh, Janet, when I was in seminary, I took a course in the Greek exegesis of Revelation, and we were all required to write a a semester paper on the exegesis of a particular paragraph, and I Mm -hmm. chose this one. So listen to what it says. Another angel of third following them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger, now, here's the interesting phrase, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, mm. and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. And I just don't know how we can get around it. It might it might strike people as as painful. It might be distressing to some souls, but there it is. The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. Well, why would that happen if they cease to exist? It says they have no rest day or night. So it seems to me the eternality of eternal of of hell is very clear in those passages. Yeah. Now, one other thing that I want to address on this because some people um, kind of trip up on it, and they say, "Look, um, how can the temporal sins of men and women?" be deserving of eternal punishment in hell. And let me just put it this way. If, uh, if you see me step on a worm on the sidewalk, you're, you might cringe a little, but you're not going to uh, call the authorities and have me arrested. But if you see me beating a dog to death, I'm liable to be prosecuted for cruelty to animals. But if I take out a gun and shoot another human being, I'm liable to go to prison for life, if not suffer the death penalty. You see that in terms of the value of each of these beings, the penalty increases. So, what should we think when we sin and rebel and deny and dishonor the God of this universe who is in, infinitely worthy of our devotion, eternally mm-hmm. glorious, far beyond any human being or any other being in the universe? So, my point is. An offense against an eternally holy and righteous God is deserving of an infinite and eternal punishment. I think why people hesitate with this is they really have a rather low view of God. They don't see him as being uh, the infinitely glorious, holy, just, righteous, perfect being who is deserving of all honor, trust, and worship. Uh, the gravity of our punishment is in direct proportion to the greatness of the one against whom we have sinned. Mm. And I think if we'll look at it in that light and read these texts in that light, we can see that that is in fact the case.
0: Superb answer. Thank you so much for that. Rita, let me turn to you in Florida, because I think your question dovetails perfectly out of this. Please go ahead. Uh,
2: yes, I just wanted to know, uh, Does can a Christian uh, lose their salvation?
1: In my opinion, no. Now, let me say this as well. There are certain texts in the New Testament that seem to suggest that. But by the overwhelming majority of texts, very clearly assert that those who know Christ are kept eternally secure in his love. You know, I think of in John 10, where Jesus says that um, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me, and no one can snatch them out of my hand. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand, for he is greater than all. Or Philippians 1.6, where Paul said to the Philippians, I'm confident, notice this, not, not I'm I making a good guess, I'm confident of this one thing, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ. And then, of course, I think the most powerful text of all is at the end of Romans chapter 8, verses 35-39, through 39, where Paul lists every conceivable threat to our salvation. Things present, things to come, principalities, powers, life, death. And he says nothing, nothing nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ.
0: Mm. Wow. Thank you, Rita. Excellent question. I so appreciate it. That means I now have an open line, 877-548-3675. When we come back, I am going right to your questions with Dr. Sam Storms. Don't forget on the info page in the market with JanetParshall.org, click on the red box. it's says program details and audio. It will take you to that page. Longer bio for Dr. Storms, link to his website, right-hand side, tough topics too. But remember, there's also tough topics back after this. Back to the phones at 877-548-3675 so you can ask your questions of Dr. Sam Storms. Any question you've got on the Bible or Christianity? Nicole, I welcome you from Tennessee. Your question, please.
2: Hi there. My question is, did Jesus obey the feasts and Sabbaths? And if so, should we? Is this part of
0: hearing and obeying?
1: Well, Nicole, certainly Jesus um, lived a perfect life in obedience to the revealed will of God. He was born under the terms of the old covenant, the Mosaic law, and we do see that he obeyed that law. But at the same time, we also see that he revealed a deeper and more spiritual and internal meaning of the law. That's why he would say, for example, that uh, just abstaining from the physical act of adultery isn't enough. When you lust in your heart, you're equally guilty of adultery or Uh, as long as you don't murder somebody, you get off the hook. He said, no, if you're angry with your brother, that's tantamount to murder. So Jesus intensified, and in a real sense, expanded uh, the meaning of the many laws that were given under the Mosaic covenant. Now, as far as him observing the feast, yes, I believe he did, because as I said, he was living under the terms of the Mosaic covenant while it was still in force. But Jesus himself said, you recall on the night he was betrayed, he said, when he was uh, instituting the Lord's Supper, he said, this covenant is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for the forgiveness of sins. And the book of Hebrews tells us that the Mosaic covenant was temporary. It had within it a built-in obsolescence such that when the superior covenant, the one instituted by Christ, was inaugurated, the dictates of the old covenant ended. So let me go a little bit deeper on that one question you asked. So yes, I do believe he observed the feast while he was present. In fact, you can read about, um, um, gosh, I'm trying to remember which one it was in John chapter seven, where he, oh, it's the feast of, um, I guess it's the feast of tabernacles. Is that right? Mm. And he said, really, it's basically all about me. Um, But the Sabbath itself, now this is going to sound a little strange to you, but just listen for a moment. I believe that the fourth commandment For the Sabbath day, as holy, as unique among all the days of the week, has been fulfilled in the person of Jesus himself. I think the Sabbath was a sign or a pointer to the complete spiritual rest that we have when we trust in Christ. We don't depend on our works of law to gain acceptance with God. We trust in the works of Jesus for us. He is our Sabbath rest. So when you read in Colossians 2, for example, Paul talks about how uh, the feasts and the festivals of the Old Covenant were shadows, the substance of which is Christ. So it's perfectly okay for a person to obey Sunday as the Christian Sabbath. They want to make that a special day among the seven. That is perfectly uh, legitimate for a Christian to do. It's not legitimate for a Christian to insist that others do the same, You know in Romans 14, Paul says one person observes one day as holy, another observes uh, says that they're all equally holy, and he says let them be let them be convinced in their own mind. So for me, there is a sense in which I mean this very quite literally. There is a sense in which every single day of my life is the Sabbath, because every single day of my life I rest in the work of Christ, who has set me free from any dependence upon my own obedience. So. That's kind of a long complicated answer to your question first part is yes he did observe the feast and the festivals, but no I do not believe that that is required of us in the New covenant for example the Passover I'm sure Jesus and his family observe the Passover every year how do we how do we celebrate it well the fulfillment is in the body of Christ shed broken for us the blood shed for us every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper we're reenacting as it were that feast but in its consummate expression so it it is a it's a complicated question and answer because it involves the relationship between the old and the new covenants but i hope that'll give you a little bit of insight
0: thank you nicole appreciate it eight seven seven five four eight three six seven five cory in michigan thank you for your patience and welcome your question please
2: hi janet hi dr Storms. thanks for taking my call Mm -hmm. um I listen to you all the time, and I love it when you're on, Doctor Storms. Um, and uh, in Proverbs 26, there it seems like there's a conflicting verb or uh, verse. Um, uh, verses four and five seem to be in conflict from each other, with each other. One says, "Don't answer a fool according to his arguments, or you'll be as foolish as they are." And then the next verse says, "Be sure you answer a fool according to their arguments, or they will seem wise in their own eyes." Which
1: is it? Well, the fact of the matter is, Corey, it's both. Because remember that Proverbs are not promises. They are principles to guide us and to give us wisdom in decision-making. And I think what, uh, I'm assuming Solomon wrote that, or it may have been one of the other contributors to Proverbs, but I'm assuming what he meant is this. You're going to find situations in life where you encounter people who are so foolish and so hard-hearted and so stubborn in their views that to engage in an argument with that individual trying to refute him or her is just going to backfire in your face stay away from them but you're going to find other situations in which a fool has made some stupid statements but they're at least open to correction and there's a possibility that you can bring insight to their life and get them turned around in the right direction so you you need to be ready and willing to address them. It's kind of like, it's a little bit the Old Testament principle that we find in Matthew chapter 7 when Jesus talked about don't cast your pearls before swine. You know, obviously we are to cast the pearl of the gospel before as many people as want to hear it, but there are some people who don't want to hear it. Some people are so resistant and defiant that you run the risk of them trampling you underfoot. So again, it's always dependent on the context and the circumstances of the situation in which you find yourself.
0: Corey, thank you very much. I appreciate your question. That means I have an open line, 877-548-3675. When we return, where am I going? You guessed it, right back to the phone so we can take more of your questions on the Bible and Christianity with our guest, Dr. Sam Storms. Our team of partial partners is growing, and I love communicating behind the scenes with this special group of friends who are devoted to giving a monthly gift to In the Market. Our partial partners receive private emails direct from me on issues we don't address on radio, and I even send a weekly audio message straight from my heart to yours. Ready to become a partial partner? Call 877 Janet 58, Janet 58, or go to In the Market with Janet Partial.org. We're visiting with Dr. Sam Storms, pastor emeritus of Bridgeway Church in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, the founder of Enjoying God Ministries, prolific author, fabulous teacher, and the list goes on. Check it all out. But I want to go right back to the phones, as I said I would, so you can keep asking your questions of Dr. Sam Storms, anything about the Bible and Christianity. 877-548-3675, 548 3675 Ray in Illinois, thanks for being here. Your question, please.
2: Thank you, Janet. I love your show, and I love you, Dr. Sam Storms. Uh, my question is on 2 Corinthians 5.8, uh, when it says, uh, absent from the body and present from the Lord. Um, a lot of people say that as soon as you die, you're with the Lord, and that's what that verse means. Um, could you expound on that?
1: Yes. In fact, Ray, I, I completely agree. Uh, it seems as if Paul is telling us about what we, know, what we call the intermediate state. And he's basically saying, for the believer, there's only one of two uh, modes of existence. You can be on this earth, alive, in your body, and away from the Lord, and he means by that physically away, or you can be dead, out of your body, and present with the Lord. So there's no third option there. So, for example, um, this is a, a text that I would use to respond to my Roman Catholic friends who would argue for the existence of purgatory. They would say, basically, well you know, for that may be true for some people, but for most people to be absent from the body is to be in purgatory until you're purged of all your sins and you're fully sanctified, and then you can enter into the presence of the Lord. Well, Paul doesn't seem to envision that. He only gives us two options. And then on top of that, uh, another passage that you can look at that will help you understand this is Philippians chapter 1. You know, Paul is in prison, and uh, he, he says, he says, I know with full courage now as always Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. And then he says this, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He said, If I live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I, I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart, and what he means by that is to depart this life and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain on in the flesh is more necessary on your account. So, again, Paul envisions only two options for the Christian. You're either alive on this earth in your physical body, and you're away from the Lord, although obviously we know that spiritually the Lord indwells us, but he means we we don't see him. We don't live by sight. We live by faith. To die and to depart from the body is to be in the presence of the Lord. So I do believe that at the moment of a Christian's death, That individual who is a believer in Jesus immediately finds himself or herself in the presence of Jesus, face to face with Him. In fact, Janet, that's um, that's a project, a writing project I have on my agenda. Mm -hmm. I want to write a book titled "What Happens When a Christian Dies," Mm -hmm. and 2 Corinthians 5:8 is going to be at the very heart of what I argue. So, Ray, I hope that helps, and I hope it encourages encourages you. And of course, that. Let's say for all believers, that's why we don't face death with fear. That's why we don't live in in anxiety about what happens when our life on earth ends, because we know it immediately leads us into the presence of Christ.
0: Mm -hmm. Thank you, Ray, so much. Michael in Iowa, your question dovetails off of this nicely. Please go ahead. Your question.
1: Yes, Dr. Storm, um, as Christians, we want to follow the Bible and please the Lord. What is your view of cremation of the body after death? Yeah, that's a, we get asked that question a lot, mm-hmm. Michael.
0: Mm-hmm. Um
1: there there's a wide variety of opinions among Christians. When we look at the scripture, the standard form of dealing with the dead is burial. But um that doesn't mean that cremation is sinful. So let me just give you a quick example. Um I have a very good friend who lives in England, and obviously England does not have nearly the the land that we have here in America. We have so many cemeteries in this country and plenty of space to in, increase the number. They don't in England. It's very hard and very expensive to buy a burial plot. There are some people who simply can't afford a casket and a burial service. I mean, you just get a the, the wooden box still digging the, digging the hole, Putting that person in there, it, it's very expensive, and some people simply can't afford it, and so they choose cremation. If you came to me and you asked for my advice as a pastor, I would say, if it is at all possible within your means, please bury your loved one or your friend who died. But if you say, I can't, nobody, we just don't have the money, we can't do it, and you say, is cremation permissible? I would say, yes, it is. I just don't think it's ideal. So it's not sinful. Um, Both of my in-laws, my mother-in-law and father-in-law, were cremated. Both of my parents were buried. I don't think one is more godly or biblical than the other. It is true, however, that in the Old Testament, the predominant number of instances in which a body is burned rather than buried is after a war. And the burning of the body is the final indignity that's imposed by the victor on the defeated person. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that cremation is wrong, because the intent in that is to humiliate the person whom, whom you have just defeated. And, of course, that's not the purpose of somebody who's having a relative or a friend cremated. So, um, again, I, 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 would, I say the ideal is burial, but cremation is permissible, Um, So, again, it's just it's a matter that you have to decide in your own conscience before God. I don't I don't think the Bible uh, gives us explicit guidance on one to the exclusion of the other. But I do think the general record is that burial is preferable.
0: Mm. Thanks, Michael. Appreciate you being a part of the conversation. Robert in Rhode Island. Welcome. Your question now, please, for Dr. Storms.
1: Oh, thank you so much for taking my call. Mm -hmm. Uh, I love your show. It's my favorite. Uh, Quick question. Will we have free will? I'm sorry, Janet, it cut off. What did he say?
0: Robert, please go ahead. Will we have free will? We lost you for a second. Yes. Will we
2: have
1: free will in heaven or will we need free will in heaven?
0: Hmm.
1: Sure. Great question. Um, Well, we need to define our terms. Here's how I understand freedom, free will. Free will is the ability and opportunity to act in accordance with your nature. So what will be our nature in the presence of the Lord with a resurrected body in that glorified state? We will be utterly and absolutely transformed. We will, we're will. we told in Philippians 3 that we will receive a body just like that of the glorified Jesus. First John 3, 1 and 2 also speaks of the transition, the transformation of the totality of what we are. First Thessalonians 5, Paul talks about the sanctification of you, body, soul, and spirit at the coming of Christ. So my point is, in heaven, we will be utterly devoid of sin. There will be no uh, sin in our souls, our bodies, no inclination, no disposition to rebel or disbelieve. We will be totally and utterly transformed, and therefore, all of our choices, all of our exercises of will will be in accordance with that transformed, glorified nature. So. When somebody says, well, what if, what if somebody wants to choose to sin in heaven? Well, again, that's a misunderstanding of what it means to be glorified in the presence of God. You won't want to because you won't have a nature that would prompt you to desire something that is contrary to God's will. Your delight, your joy, the totality of the bent of your soul, if I can use that language, will be toward holiness. And you will freely embrace those decisions that are a reflection of your transformed nature.
0: Hmm. Robert, thank you so much for the question. I appreciate it. 877-548-3675. Josh in Texas, thank you for being here. Please, your question now.
2: Uh, yes, thanks for the opportunity. I was uh, catching up a moment ago in regards to uh, uh, the, the, the Sabbath and uh, the, the commandment dealing with uh, the Sabbath day and keeping it holy, and it brought to mind—I'll try to keep this short, and I'll wait for your response uh <clears throat> if Christ came and i believe we pretty much all agree on this that are christians Christ came not to do away with the law but to fulfill the law so Christ came and fulfilled the law if we can if if we can uh pick any of the 10 commandments and say well it doesn't necessarily apply then could we pick any of them and say it doesn't apply? And what really sparked me to ha- ask this question is, when Jesus did away, way, when, when he fulfilled the law, is the law the Ten Commandments, or is it the many hundreds of laws, uh, Mosaic laws, that came after the Ten Commandments were given to Moses?
1: Yeah, that's a huge question, uh, Josh, and it relates to the issue of, uh, and it's asked a lot, how how do we living under the New Covenant respond to the laws of the Old Covenant? First of all, I would say this. Nine of the Ten Commandments are re- explicitly repeated in the New Covenant, in the New Testament Scriptures. The only one that is not repeated is the Fourth Commandment, which re- is with regard to the Sabbath. I think the Sabbath was uniquely a sign, we're told this in Exodus, was uniquely a sign of God's covenant with Israel and that the fulfillment of all that the Sabbath day intended is found in Christ and all that he has done for us to give us the rest that we so deeply desire. Um, As far as all the other commandments, I think you have to take each one and look at it and interpret it, if I can use this language, through the grid or the framework of the person and work of Christ and the principles of the new covenant. So... um, you know, you could go back into Leviticus and you could look at all these ceremonial laws, but yet we know that Christ fulfilled all the ceremonial laws. And his life, death, and resurrection rendered obsolete uh, the laws regarding, you know, wearing clothing of mixed garment, for example, or certain foods that you can't eat. Jesus himself said that he has cleansed all things and we are free to eat uh, anything that is put before us. So again, you have to, you have to, um, take these Old Testament laws and look at them and read them through the grid or the framework of the person and work of Christ and the Mm -hmm. new covenant scriptures.
0: And we'll be right back. Back to the phones with our guest, Dr. Sam Storms. Boy, I'll tell you what, every line is lit. You've been taking my suggestion that the minute you hear me say goodbye, you get in with your call and take that empty line. So I'm so thankful. And I'm just going to give you the heads up. Whatever I can't get to this hour, write your question down. And Lord willing, if Dr. Storms is amenable, when we do this again, hopefully you'll call in first and we'll get to your question right away. 877-548-3675. And in Indiana, thanks for being here and your question, please.
2: Yes, uh, I'm not a really good reader. Uh, I don't read unless I just have to. Uh, is there a Bible that's easy to understand? And second question, is there Bibles that you should
1: not uh, read bad? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, if you're not a great reader, and by the way, there's no shame in that. There are a lot of people who find themselves in that situation. I would encourage you to get the Bible on uh, that's been recorded. Uh, I would highly recommend that you go to the Crossway Books website and they have several individuals who have read and it's recorded the entire Bible. And one of those individuals is a very dear friend of mine named Ray Ortland. And Ray has basically recorded all of the entire Bible according to the English Standard Version. And that way you can just listen to it when you walk, listen to it in your car. You don't have to worry about uh, your aversion to reading. Uh, That would be a great way for you to expose yourself to the teaching of scripture. Now, as far as, are there any Bibles to avoid? Yes. Um, I know this might stir up some controversy, but um, I think you should avoid the Passion Translation. Uh, I don't believe it's a translation. I believe it is uh, an expanded paraphrase of one man's understanding of what the Bible is saying. And I think there are multiple places where it is really off base. Um, you you might want to read um, the Living Translation. Uh, you know I'm not a real fan of it because I like a real literal rendering of the original text. Um, the Living Translation is also again more of a paraphrase, so it takes a few liberties here and there. But it's very fun to read it. Perhaps the the uh, most fluid of all English translations is the New International Version. Um, it's not my favorite, but it's still good. Uh, I just finished writing the commentary on Romans, and the publisher required that I use the NIV for my, my fundamental uh, Bible translation. I was happy to do that. My preference is for the ESV, the English Standard Version. I think it's, it strikes the perfect balance between a literal rendering of the original text, but also in a readable form. But again, I would really encourage you... Um, Take advantage of uh, the ESV in its recorded version, and I, uh, I think you will really enjoy it, and you'll profit from it greatly. Even, uh, and it'll kind of put to rest any concerns you have with your inability or your reluctance to read uh, a book or a read um, in front of you. And just listen to the text of Scripture; it's a beautiful mm-hmm. thing.
0: Mm-hmm. Ed, thank you so much for being a part of this. I appreciate it, Nancy in Ohio. Your question follows on the heels of Ed's beautifully, so go ahead and ask it, please.
2: Yes, thank you. Good segue. And Janet, hi, it's Nancy from Cornerstone Pregnancy, oh. when you came and spoke us in Elyria. We love Wonderful. you.
0: Wonderful. Oh, thank you. Hug around your neck, my friend.
2: Yeah, so regarding the Bible, um, I have folks that will argue with me left and right that the Bible isn't the true word of God because all the books that were removed through history and, and different things, and, and I personally just don't know how to respond to that. I I believe we have what we're supposed to have. Um, they don't find that a good answer. So what can I tell them about all the things that were removed throughout history, the English church and everyone else that took things out of there? What can I tell them? that? How, how can I say that what we have is what we're supposed
1: to have? Nancy, I don't believe – I wouldn't agree with the statement that down through history books have been removed. In the first 300 years of the church's history, up until around 386 A.D., There was continual conversation um, among the people of God as to which books, which writings should be included in what we call the canon of Scripture. And they made their judgments based upon, was it written by an apostle or uh, an associate of an apostle? Is it consistent with the Old Testament Scriptures? Uh, Does it center on the person of Christ? And most important of all, I believe that in the providence of God, the Holy Spirit impressed upon the conscience of God's people, the reality, the truth, and the inspiration and the origin of the 66 books that we have. And it was on that basis that they closed the canon and ruled out any other books. Now, as you know, the Roman Catholic Church includes what's called the Apocrypha. Those were other books written uh, around the time, you know, anywhere from 300 B.C. up to about 100 A.D., there's a lot of good information in the apocryphal books, but they were excluded because, basically because the Spirit of God did not awaken the collective conscience of the early church to recognize that these were the books that God intended to govern the life and the behavior of his people down through history. So here's the bottom line. This is my own conviction. The reason I believe, the final ultimate reason why I believe that the 66 books of our English Bibles are the ones that we are to live by is because I believe that in God's providence, he worked to secure the recognition of those books by the early church, and that's why the others were excluded. It's because when you read, for example, the Epistle of Barnabas, written in the middle of the second century, or the letters of Clement toward the end of the first century, they're very interesting, they're very enlightening, but they did not carry the intrinsic, inherent authority of God himself. And the Spirit of God, in His providential mercy, led the church to recognize that. And that's why they were left out, and the 66 books that we have were all included. So again, um, you know, it's it's very difficult to, to argue with the person who has a different opinion on this, because they don't recognize the providence of God in securing for us the books that He meant to bind the conscience of His people. But I do believe in that. So ultimately, I trust in God's providential mercy through the Spirit, awakening the church to the books that he wanted to bind the conscience and guide the behavior of his people until the second coming.
0: Uh-huh. Nancy, I have to tell you, that is one of the best answers I have ever heard to that question about what is in and what is out. Thank you for the question. And Sam, thank you so much for that response. And let me say what I always say. Thank you, Sam, for being here. You've heard it from even some of our callers. We just love it when you come because of the clarity of your teaching within the parameters of scripture, and you just make us hungry for more. And it was fascinating just to see how a question begat another question begat another question. And that really is the hallmark of an excellent teacher. So friends, if you didn't get on the air and you'd like your question to be answered, write it down. And the next time Dr. Storms comes to visit, Lord willing, you'll be at the front of the line and we'll be able to take your question. In the meantime, don't forget, he's got all kinds of resources at samstorms.org. And we've got tough topics too, easy for your reference on our info page. Thanks, friends. We'll see you next time.